what does digital media preservation mean to you? That's a lot to unpack, so let's go through it step by step. Preservation and archiving have been some of the most important parts of our culture for thousands of years. Without these methods, we wouldn't have any history. Physical records of our existence have always been around, but are just that, physical. They can weather down over time and be lost. Now, in the digital age, you'd think that it'd be easier than ever to store and keep any piece of digital information about humanity and what we do, what we create, who we are, but there's a crux to that. Copyright. Copyright and rights holders have a very large say in what's available for people to access. While it's harder for digital data to be destroyed, it can very easily be taken away. There's this push and pull between rights holders, companies, corporations, and archivists that has been going on for decades, which seems like a long time, but in the grand scheme of lawmaking, it really isn't. In that time, tons of pieces of media have unfortunately been lost. It really does mean a lot, considering, especially with the internet, um, and a lot of, and we're starting to, a lot of people are starting to realize nowadays is like not everything could just reappear, reappear back on the internet again. Like a lot of it can just disappear like that. That's Jane. She has a hobby in searching for and preserving obscure media. She has as much of a knack in amateur archiving as I do so, if not more. Considering, like, I donate, a, like, at least $10 a month totally to the Internet Archive, it means too much to me and on a personal level. Ten whole dollars. That's how you know she's serious. But Jane brings up a good point, and even a little bit of money goes a long way. Digital preservation means a lot to people. The problem is, it's more of a niche hobby for people like me, Jane, and others. It's not something that we're pursuing full-time in order to preserve our digital culture. It's just something we do in our spare time. The other thing is that the majority of people don't really have any knowledge or care for digital preservation, when I feel like it's more important now than ever. I feel like, especially with digital preservation as a whole, I feel like, especially considering, like, you've, you've heard of the recent lawsuit with Internet Archive, and, like, a lot of, like really shitty publishers, you know, basically going after a copyright suit and all that. Which, to be fair, that was also on their part because they were basically handing out free copyrighted books because, oh, it's COVID. So let's, this was all during like the cold COVID pandemic. So, you know, that, that everyone was kind of like trying to cut corners and here and there. Centralized organizations like Internet Archive have always been under fire when it comes to copyright, as a lot of the media that they store and host for anyone to access can be taken away. Since the Internet Archive is arguably the biggest, or at least most well-known, archive when it comes to software, videos, games, shows, movies, books, etc., it's especially damning when the most recent lawsuit that they've landed into didn't go into their favor. I feel like this gives a leg up for people going against archiving efforts like the Internet Archive. I wouldn't really want to think about a future in which sites like the Internet Archive can go down and essentially be destroyed. I hope that this recent lawsuit doesn't set a permanent precedent on future digital archiving efforts, as it could be detrimental. If we lose that, honestly, it will be probably it will probably be the equivalent of the burning of the Alexandria um, Library, but for the internet in a way. If that like makes sense. People would think that the government would try and help these preservation efforts in some sense to avoid something like Jane said. Overall, it seems that they've been rather absent for the most part on the idea. When you look at the government today, especially, they're not familiar with the internet. Especially if you just if you look at Congress meetings, um, like the Zuckerberg trial. Especially that, that a lot of senators don't understand how the internet works. So I think more or less it might just come down to individuals um, to preserve digital media. I, I think um, it'll take a while for government to catch up, if at all. If at all is a bleak sentiment, but not exactly an unreasonable one. That's Ryan Carberry. He's a student at Providence College who's a co-owner in a local electronics business. 
He's been archiving things himself for a couple years now, with him mainly downloading media he doesn't want going anywhere. That coincides with what he said, as one day it might be up to individuals to preserve digital media rather than more centralized groups. The future is uncertain in preservation and copyright laws, and lawmakers aren't exactly making it their top priority to make sure that obscure pieces of media stay available to the public. Doesn't help that a significant number of companies either don't care about their history or works and don't want to do anything to make them more accessible to people in the future, making them almost impossible to find. This can be applied to books, shows, games, movies, music, software, pretty much anything. It's a shame when consumers and fans have to step in to preserve something because a company isn't willing to make something accessible. Let's say you're a company, you make a movie or a video game, and it's the 90s, uh, you put it on a DVD probably, or you put it on a game cartridge. Now, there's only going to be probably 50,000 of those sold, for example. Uh, people are going to buy it, they'll enjoy it, but then it's 2023, and let's say someone wants to play uh, your old game from the 90s but there's no way to access it. By legal definition, the only way you'll be able to play it is through that original copy, if it's even in circulation anymore, or maybe people are selling it for an exuberantly high price just to make a quick buck. But on the other, on the other side is that if it's really inaccessible, it might be morally correct to just download it off the internet since it's out of circulation and people are selling it for $500 when it was originally selling for 40. Games are a great example of this, with accessibility being a very hot topic today. They're interesting because video games are less viewed as something that should be preserved than other types of media, which I think is kind of chalked up to games being a lot younger than other types of media. There's niches of people preserving films and music, but I think there's even less niches of people preserving games. A lot of companies don't exactly make it easy. That sort of niche culture is what drew me into preservation in the first place. Without it, there'd be such a small likelihood of you finding something really obscure that you did or didn't want. I was playing, what was it? It was an old Sega Saturn game. And I wanted to look at the instruction manual because I didn't know what I was doing. And I went on Internet Archive and there was the manual right there. And it was nice being able to go online and find it. So, find something that you normally wouldn't find, especially today. Where else would you find something so necessary to a small group of people but so obscure? That whole sentiment is why preservation on a large scale doesn't matter to a lot of people, since there's so much nuance and an incredible amount of effort involved to not only have these things to archive, but to also keep them up and running. That's the magic of the internet, though. You can find people passionate over things you might have never even thought about. So, funny thing, um, this project is still, like, I never really canceled it, right? It's been in a just kind of limbo state of progress. It was basically my attempt of basically has, like colorizing the original Gojira from 1954 by using like historically accurate um, like descriptions of like what some things looked like in color. So like the original suit, some of the clothing that like the actors were, um, some of the set designs, and you know most of that that would like that was supposed to be in color. Preserving a certain version of a film that doesn't exist is something that I'd never expect, but Shane's been committed to making it a reality on and off. That kind of passion I feel is very admirable and gives me a sense of hope in our digital future, even if it's something just for fun. A lot of companies, especially larger ones, don't do the greatest job when it comes to archiving their past, but there's always going to be passionate people who step up to the plate no matter how difficult it is. A good chunk of the time, this is against the company's wishes, with copyright making the preservation of media like games and movies kind of a gray area. Even so, people are going to stick through it. Somewhat rarely though, you'll find companies who are actually willing to preserve their works and enhance them even. Well, the thing is, especially because, like, nowadays, I believe there's, like, a lot there with with AI projects and all that. And I think um, 
Toho has talked about like doing a colorization project for their for the original Godzilla. I think way after like I even started attempting it. Because I know they recently just released the their 4K remaster of the film just recently, which is big news, honestly, because if I remember correctly, it was mostly just from because uh, they, they recently rescanned the the original um, negatives of the original film to get to get it for 4K, which is in, which is crazy considering that that, that film just survived for so long considering a lot of those films from the early from the early 50s to like around the late 70s they kind of just never really existed anymore people should be wary and preserve what physical media we have digitally since it might end up forgotten or lost one day like a lot of those older films that jane mentioned the further back you go the more muddy our history becomes setting a good precedent for our future is going to be paramount especially with a lot of contemporary issues like the war in ukraine where their whole internet is at stake because of the conflict they're in their whole digital culture is at stake and it could be for us too in the future but i don't really like thinking about that too much I talked to two professional archivists, Jason Scott and Brendan Allen separately, about their thoughts and opinions on the state of digital archiving to get perspectives from, I guess, proper archivists. People who'd probably wear a suit and tie before turning on their computers every day. Real formal stuff. Jason Scott is a co-founder of Archive Team, which is a quote-unquote loose collective of rogue archivists, programmers, writers, and loudmouths dedicated to saving our digital heritage. I consider myself a co-founder of Archive Team. I put forward the idea of archive team, but I put forward a lot of ideas and I, you know, I, I treat the world as my suggestion box. So I'm not going to claim that every time I came up with an idea and it went off and went into reality that I'm a founder. I also asked him how big that loose collective actually is. I didn't know what to expect, honestly. There's usually 20 or 30 people who are pretty intensely into it. And there's like five or six people who I think of as like living in it. Like, they live in it enough that they have to retire. They literally have to retire. Archive Team itself isn't a repository like other online efforts like Internet Archive. What they save isn't stored on their site, only written about. In fact, you can access most of Archive Team's efforts on Internet Archive. Archive Team is more of a site that holds records for past, current, and future archiving efforts and projects, allowing people to volunteer and potentially contribute. A lot of archive work is non-profit and mostly depends on people willing to volunteer and set their time aside specifically to help preserve old media. Internet Archive and Archive Team are non-profits. For the people who run them, their time is very valuable because they can only preserve so much for no pay either. We went further into this topic, asking questions specifically like what is and isn't worth preserving, because it's impossible to try and hold absolutely everything that people make. Sites like YouTube have so much media being uploaded to it every day to the point where it's not reasonable at all to try and store and save everything, even though it's a contemporary example of digital culture that's so significant. Yeah, so people are like, what do you do when, when, when you know, YouTube goes down? And we're like, cry? That isn't to say archivists won't do anything if something like that were to happen. So you say to yourself, like, let's say YouTube is in distress, and we've already started this anyway, but you go and you grab, like, the top 10,000 most popular videos, right? So Gangnam Style, definitely going to get it. But the idea being that, okay, well, these have an influence on society. Like, they represent things that will, you know play a part in our future 
understanding of what was important now. You know, in the same way you'd want, whether you want to admit it or not, you know, you want every episode of Seinfeld. You want as many uh, episodes of Saturday Night Live. You want these, you know, season or series finales of major, major shows that ran for years to show like what was important or what was affecting people in the the realm of um, culture. So grab that. Okay, good. Great. It'd be impossible to try and archive all of the random five-second videos that people upload from their phone, so while it's difficult and really ambiguous to say what is and isn't worth preserving, trying to save at least the videos that had the biggest cultural impact would be a good start. Sometimes even big productions that you wouldn't expect to go down occasionally do. The people involved actually reach out for help. Sometimes what you end up doing is saying, like, well, even, like, for example, one day Red Bull Academy announced that they were kind of like, winding down the program and red bull academy was just a sponsored series of lectures and instructionals and meetings that were run by red bull i think they were run out of la and uh it was announced like yep they're defunding they're gonna drop out they're gonna leave the youtube thing up and they're gonna leave their website up but they're you know they're hollowing out and i made some sort of joking reference to them and I got contacted by the guy in charge and he was like, I know who you are. Go for it, please. Like duplicate it. We worked really hard on it. It's probably going to stay up for anywhere between a year or five years, but at some point they'll shut it down. It'd be great if you could just grab it. So like he was basically like hand, you know, took his hands off and I made a little Red Bull Academy uh, collection at the archive and just kind of sucked in a few hundred or so lectures and instructional videos and everything else. This talk about what should and shouldn't be archived can also extend to mediums that aren't really meant to last. Things like message boards or image boards where they're meant to move really quick and there's so much of it that it seems like a monumental task or a fruitless effort to try and preserve it, especially considering that some view that type of medium as culturally insignificant. Yeah, we had we had a schism back in 2000. Uh, 13 or 14. A group of people thought we should archive 4chan. And I said, no, we should not archive 4chan. They were like, but we really want to archive 4chan. I'm like, we should not archive image boards. They're designed for transients. There are other groups that compile best ofs through the waterfall of data, right? And so you're not black holing it. But it's not designed for that. And they were like, but we want to do it anyway. And I went, well, then you should go elsewhere. And that formed Bibanon, Bibliothecia Anonica, which is a group that exists to this day that primarily archives um, image boards. So, like, that was a kind of self-starting that was brilliant, right? Like, they just said we don't agree and we're going to take the initiative and do this. I appreciate how people can turn to archivists like Jason, but he can still say no. Not everything is worth his time and those rejections can actually lead to groups forming, like he mentioned, that are still running today. Sometimes it's better to take initiative rather than to rely on someone else to try and help you. Archiving is a group effort, but there's still a lot of individuality to it. 
Like I said about Jane earlier, this type of passion and willingness to stick through and archive and preserve any kind of history we leave behind will help humanity so much in the long run, even if it's something as quote-unquote insignificant as an image board. With help like this, I feel like we'll be able to see and appreciate so much more of our culture and be able to show it to future generations, more so than anyone in the past could using more physical records. Brendan Allen is an archivist and librarian for both Democracy Now!, which is an independent news program, and for XFR, another collective that works in archiving mainly audiovisual media. I'm sorry I didn't give him a proper introduction earlier, that transition to the interview with Jason Scott was too good to pass up, and sorry to the folks who thought I somehow landed Brendan Allen, the MMA fighter, to talk about digital preservation and culture. Yeah, my name is Brendan Allen. I'm an archivist. I've been with Democracy Now! Um, since... Um, November of 2011 as the archivist. And um, yeah, I, I'm also a volunteer core member of the Transfer Collective here in Brooklyn. So collections that I'm working with uh, for Democracy Now! Uh, include a digital collection, which is mostly uh, motion image, digital video, and, um, and audio. And there's also a physical collection of magnetic media of um, audiovisual content. And uh, I also process a book collection for a library and also archive uh, various kinds of ephemera. Um, there's a paper collection consisting of, um, you know, handbills, posters, photographs, uh, physical media. We talked a lot about the internet archive lawsuit that I mentioned earlier and the potential implications of it. Only then did I sort of realize how messed up the whole situation was. First off, Internet Archive was providing people books that could be taken out like a real library. Now, you could argue, what's the difference between a real library lending out books and an online repository lending out books? But either doesn't really affect the publishing house's bottom line, as the books have already been paid for several times over. It's not like Internet Archive is suddenly posting every single copyrighted published work for everyone to download, it's only the books that people are allowed to have digitally for a short time before giving them back, like an actual library. It's not giving away the entire, you know, giving away the entire shop. It's just by piecemeal, you get, you know, access to uh, a, a title for a very limited amount of time as you would in a, like, you know, using uh, a public library. So, you know, I just feel like it's, I think the publishers are just way off base. It seems like a lot of larger companies get really trigger-happy when it comes to litigating any kind of infringement, even when it doesn't affect their bottom line. We've seen that sort of skyrocket in the digital age where everyone has access to an endless amount of copyrighted material. We've seen that with social media platforms like YouTube, where fair use and copyright are still major issues to this day because, in some cases, people and companies are in the right to take down people using their works, but at the same time, there's cases where it's totally unfair. What's interesting to me, though, in the Internet Archive case was they were being litigated because of this lending that they were doing during COVID, so it's not like everyone could exactly go down to a library and take these books out regardless. Paranoid was a word that Brendan used to describe it, and I think it fits quite well. I don't understand why they're really so paranoid, but in regard to like copyright, it does set a weird precedent, right? So, like my institution, so we create content, but we use a lot of third-party content in our content, if that makes sense. Like we use a lot of B-roll that we we purchase as a, on a subscription from a particular uh, news agency. And we use that, you know, 
pretty much every day in our productions. And it's content that we don't own, but we have a specific license to use. And, you know, it's just concerning because we use the Internet Archive as a uh, distribution platform. So if we were, you know, hit with a um, cease and desist from, you know, a news agency over copyright issues because of the distribution, you know, litigation, that would really not be good. It's a really tough situation since essentially people are getting punished for trying to give as much access to this kind of media as possible in a time when accessing this kind of thing was really difficult. According to a study done by The Bookseller and NPD Bookscan, physical sales of books in bookstores actually had a significant jump in 2020, and while it's falling now, the amount of books being bought is still way higher than it was pre-COVID. Imagine how high it could have been if there were less restrictions during the pandemic. So, sites like Internet Archive aren't really affecting publishing houses' profit margin and are planning to fight back in court. And I also think that the Internet Archive is probably going to win on appeal. Um, and I feel like, um, you know, I think once this gains more attention, I feel like, you know, the public's sort of perception of the case, you know, is, is going to actually side with the Internet Archive. And I think that's going to have a big uh, impact on on the case, you know, uh, because it's essentially just stripping people's public libraries away from them, you know. At the end of the day, it all comes down to money. If companies can sense that they can lose a tiny bit of cash on someone distributing their work, then they'll go for them. I think they're trying to set a precedent to the consumers and archivists of today to not even try and host and distribute this kind of work. And I think that's really going to affect archiving in the future. This case with the Internet Archive, though, is going to be pretty telling of how this precedent will go. I think you can tell which way I'm leaning, though. I'm trying to stay optimistic for the future when it comes to media preservation in the digital sphere, but it's been kind of difficult recently with all the copyright infringement issues and potential lawsuits that archiving efforts can face. Our digital culture should be preserved no matter what, otherwise so much of our history is going to be lost forever. What does give me hope, though, is the seemingly endless amount of people who are willing to go to the end of the earth to find something that has been seemingly lost and just put it up for everyone to see for generations to come. That kind of enthusiasm is going to keep digital preservation alive. Whether or not that person is working as an individual or as a part of a larger organization doesn't seem to matter, as they'd find and store this media either way. There's always going to be that passion, so here's to the future. I'm Charlie Wicks, and you've been listening to Digital Delinquency. I hope you've learned something today and care a little bit more about our digital future. Thank you for your time.